reading comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through, fi- 1 through 5, and 16 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether. According to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Every good party needs a bizarre story, and so we figured at this summer party we would start off with one that feels pretty bizarre. So it's great to be together, and here's what's interesting. I think the most bizarre part of what we're about to engage in this morning is the least obvious. So first, for the obvious, obviously bizarre, okay? Um, Imagine there's a couple, they're on a road trip, and they go into a town, and while they're on this trip, they go into this town and they're about to check into a hotel. And this family meets them and says, hey, don't stay in that hotel. It's worse than roaches. Come stay with us. We've got this Airbnb that we normally like rent out, but you can stay with us. Stay with us for free. And they start to make a dinner. Well, the rest of the townsfolk kind of catch wind of what's going on. And so they, the men, both young and old, every, every guy in the town shows up. They hop out of their vehicles. They're holding guns. They've got this disgruntled look on their face. The family tries to stop them, but they push the family out of the way and they come to the door and they say, we want that couple and we want them now. And they begin to bang on the door and it's only a matter of time before the door flies in and they're going to get this couple. I mean, this is, this is the worst nightmare, right? Your worst nightmare. And it's literally every thriller you've ever seen. Not every thriller, but you know, you know sorry. Some of you are like, who's that? Um, <clears throat> But in all reality, like if, if you've ever seen a horror film or a thriller, then you know like you're, you're rooting for the, that innocent family that happened to come in and then the family that stood up for that couple that came in. And, and you want those who are perpetrating this injustice to get theirs and you want to make sure that no one ever, ever, ever experiences this level of atrocity ever again. You want justice to be done. You want that family to be safe and you want the wrongdoers to be punished. That is basically the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God has heard the cries of their victims. 
So a little bit of background on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so we first learn about Sodom and Gomorrah earlier in Genesis when Abraham's nephew Lot goes to move to Sodom. Okay, and shortly thereafter he moves to Sodom. All these marauders come in and they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all of the inhabitants as captives, as slaves, and they take all their wealth and they go and head out of town. Abraham hears about it. He brings together his small little band. They chase down those who had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And he conquers them. And he frees Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And Sodom, after this battle, keeps most of the wealth. The king of Sodom tries to give some to Abraham. And Abraham's, no thanks, I'm good. I don't need any wealth from Sodom. And so what we find is in the history of Sodom is that they now have quite a bit of wealth. And simultaneously are really anxious about outsiders. Really nervous. They've been conquered before. They know what it feels like to be carried away as slaves. And so they've easily created a justification and a false sense of security to abuse whoever comes through their doors. As we heard just read, God has heard the outcry. This word outcry is literally the shrieks of torment of the oppressed. So what happens? So God sends in two messengers, these angelic beings that look like ordinary men, and they go into Sodom to kind of explore this out, right? And while they're there, Lot's kind of like, hey, you guys are visitors? Why don't you come stay with me? No, we're going to stay in the town square. No, 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 don't do that. Just come and stay with me, and you can stay in my house. Well, all the men in Sodom catch wind of this, both young and old, the text says. The whole town shows up and begins banging on the door, and Lot goes to the front of the door, and he's like, guys, 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 you don't want to do this. And then he makes an awful proposal about his daughters. And then they try to take him out. And they say, we're going to do worse to your family after we've taken care of these men. Give us these men so that we can abuse them. And then the angelic beings pull Lot inside before the townsfolk slaughter Lot. They blind all the men. And they basically, I mean, the text is pretty clear. They have to grab Lot by the hand and his wife and two of his daughters. And they have to, they have to like forcefully rescue them. Out of Sodom before God's judgment comes to rain down on all of Sodom. Pretty wacky story, right? Now, normally when we hear of the town Sodom and Gomorrah, in our cultural context, we think of one thing. We think of homosexual lust, okay? And I want to be clear, that's not not going on here. The Hebrew verb to know, yada, whenever it's used with a personal direct object, as it is here always, not sometimes, not part of the time, always as a sexual innuendo. Always. But I also want to be clear that this city was absolutely awful, not only because of its sexual persuasion and perspective on the world. The reason the city is awful is because how its citizens had abandoned everything that God desired for humanity, including God's design for sexuality. In fact, if you jump over to Ezekiel, when God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, he's speaking to Jerusalem, and you go to verses 49 and 50, this is what God says is the guilt of Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. What's also fascinating is if you jump up one verse before that, verse 48, when God is speaking about Jerusalem, his special city, and all the atrocities they were doing at this time, 
We read, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. So when God compares Jerusalem over against Sodom, he's saying Jerusalem at this time is worse than Sodom was. Then when you get to Jude, so a follower of Jesus, and he speaks of Sodom, yes, he speaks of the sexual immorality that occurs here in this town. But why he mentions it is to warn Christians not to fall to the same temptation. His emphasis there is that this could happen to any one of us. And then you go to the gospel account of Luke. And we see Jesus sending out 72 disciples to go and tell of the kingdom of God breaking in through the person of Jesus to the surrounding towns. And what does Jesus say? He says it's going to be easier for Sodom on the final judgment than these towns who reject Jesus. So I want to be very clear, okay, Sodom is a great example, sure, of an awful city, of city, you know, of human beings at, its, at their worst. But more than that, more than that, we should, when we're looking in this text, see a picture of any one of us when we turn our back on God. We should never be able to look down our noses at Sodom, but we should be very wary of the warning that this too could be us. And so God's anger burns against Sodom and the injustices that are being carried out there. And so he does what we long to see happen in every horror film and every thriller we've ever watched. He brings his justice to bear. He gets the family out and he tries to, you know, and he brings out his messengers and all those who are bringing about these atrocities. He rains down his justice so that it will never happen again to innocent folks who walk into that city. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of parallel. If you're reading and studying the book of Genesis with us, there's a lot of parallel with the flood narrative. A ton. Back in the flood narrative, right, the, the vessel of God's judgment was water. Here, the vessel of God's judgment is fire. Back in the flood narrative, he saved one family, Noah. Here in Sodom, he saves one family, Lot. After the flood goes down. There's some weird nakedness and sex stuff going on after the flood. Here, after the story of Sodom, there's some weird nakedness and sex stuff going on. Both of those include alcohol. There's some weird things going on, but there's tons of parallel. Tons of parallel. And what we're meant to see here in this moment is God's justice coming to bear. And if you are wrestling with the, the, a good God who is both just and brings his judgment to bear in space and time and the world in which we live, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon as we studied it in Genesis. That's a place where I deeply unpack that a lot more than we're going to this morning. But you need to know that God will not sit idly by in the face of injustice in his good world. He cares too much for you and for me and for his creation. It's still, no doubt, bizarre though, right? It's a pretty bizarre story. But even still, I think, I think, that's obviously bizarre. I think what's even more bizarre, more bizarre than what happens to and in Sodom and Gomorrah is that Abraham presses God to pardon Sodom. Now, when's, like if you knew a town had a reputation for lynching and abusing people every time they came into their town, would you be like, hey God, can you forgive them? Can you just like, can you release them of guilt? Can you just like let your judgment pass over them? This is, this is, I mean, in one sense, it feels so bizarre that Abraham would ask this. This feels so bizarre 
that we may even be tempted to believe that this is a fictitious tale or some sort of myth made up to teach us a lesson, but it's not. This happened within history. God somehow invited a human being to intercede, to actually engage in his process of justice. And more than inviting Abraham to pray, more than just haggling over the price of a city like we would maybe haggle over the price of a car in a used sales lot, Instead, we find Abraham playing priest. Now, when we think of priest, we often think of a certain wardrobe, you know, and a certain institution. But I want you to hear this morning, broadly speaking, a priest is someone who is a go-between between God and humanity. That is the broader category. And the picture we're given here in our text this morning is of God with all of his justice and all of his righteousness and all of his goodness and all the wicked, atrocious injustices going on in Sodom. And where is Abraham? But right smack in the middle. And we need to learn what Abraham learns about God here. Because if we come to understand what Abraham learns about God in this moment, we're going to have a better understanding of the gospel. We're going to have a better understanding of what God is doing in and through Jesus for us. We're going to have a better understanding who we're called to be in our city and how we're called to intercede for our city. But before we get to any of the present day implications, we have to make sense as to what on earth is happening here in Genesis 18. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, here beginning in verse, we're going to look in verse 17. So as you heard read, we, we covered this last week, there are three visitors who happen upon Abraham, he's there in front of his tent, somehow Abraham, we don't know how, but somehow he surmises that one of them is God, and after they stay for a little bit, they're on their way out, they're, about, they're on their way headed to Sodom, and God basically says to Abraham, should I tell you what I'm about to do? Yeah, I should tell you what I'm about to do. And this is what God says to Abraham, verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And at that point, those two other visitors that are there with God, they start headed on their way to Sodom, and we see what happens there, right? We know it. We just covered that. But now we have God and Abraham alone, and Abraham standing before God. And then we read in verse 23 that Abraham draws near. And it's not like Abraham just suddenly got a little cozier with God. This is a technical term for approaching the bench of a judge. God invites Abraham to be a representative, an advocate for the people of the plain of which Sodom is a part. And when Abraham comes to bring his defense for the whole plain, do you notice what he asks for? If you continue reading on, he asks that God would spare all of it. All of Sodom. All those that have carried out these major acts of injustice and pain and atrocious Infliction of wounds. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that Abraham asks for the pardon of the whole city. That in and of itself is pretty astounding. But listen to how he starts his defense. He starts with this rhetorical question here in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, at first you may be thinking, okay, is he asking questions because he's genuinely doubting God's character? That's not what's going on here. He's not asking a question, but he's like, God, have you lost your righteousness? 
Are you no longer a just? No, he's adding a rhetorical question to start it off in his defense where the obvious answer is, of course not. Of course you're going to do what's just. Of course you're going to do what's right. And so after he affirms through this rhetorical, very Jewish way of going about it, saying, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Of course you won't do that. And, and since you're such a just and righteous God, then he begins to tread on a really interesting argument. Look with me here at verses 24 and 25. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. You see, Abraham's argument is not, Hey God, can you just... How about we just be a little more relaxed? Why don't you just turn a blind eye to the wickedness you see in this city? Can you, just, can you just give us a little mercy here? Can you turn a blind eye to what you're seeing going? That is not his tactic. Nor is his tactic to say, I know there's this whole city of Sodom, but listen, there, there are a couple people who, who probably are pretty righteous and they're pretty good. Can you just get those out of there and then bring your judgment on the rest of them? No, 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 no. He doesn't go super individualistic as we would in a Western society. Abraham does something truly astounding. He says, God, I know you love righteousness. You are a righteous God. But can you love righteousness so much that if there are just a few righteousness, a few righteous, if, could you value their righteousness so much that it would spare a whole city? It's not going individual. It's a new sort of corporate identity he's shooting for when it comes to the city of the plain, the city of Sodom, or the, the, the area of the plain which includes the city of Sodom. He's basically saying, God, 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 I know you love righteousness. You are good. You are just. You long for what is right in the world because what is right in the world is good for your creation. But could you, if there are just a few righteous, could those few righteous... Could you love their righteousness so much that it would cover over the wickedness that's of the rest of the city? Could you love their righteousness so much that you would spare everyone else in the city and not bring your judgment on the whole of the city? In other words, when you look at me, can you not just look at my account, but is there a possibility that you could look at someone else's account on my behalf? Could someone else's righteousness cover the wickedness of others? This is a really astounding argument that Abraham is beginning to go down. And this feels really weird to us. I think especially as Westerns, Westerners because we're radically individualistic. We don't like anything that really smells or tastes like corporate responsibility. Something in which I didn't do anything, somebody else did something, but now I have to pay for it. Especially as white majority culture, we often push against anything other than individual responsibility. When I look at my life, when I think about my rewards or consequences, they should be based solely upon the decisions I've made and the realities in which I've pursued. But don't look at my race, don't look at my class, don't look at what my family and the decisions they've made in the past. It's all about me right here, right now. And so we push against corporate responsibility when in reality, 
most cultures in the rest of the world, including the biblical perspective, have a more nuanced or balanced view. Nowhere do we see in Scripture the, uh, the complete uh, disregard of individual responsibility. No. But there is, within Scripture, a framework for corporate responsibility that those I have solidarity with I receive benefits as well as punishment because I'm in solidarity with them. When somebody looks at me, my record is tied up with the record of those who are around me and those who came before me. Our African-American brothers and sisters have been extremely helpful in providing some clarity here. Um, African-Americans, when they look at American society, are much better at seeing how the decisions made and the identity of a corporate group, even decisions by those who are before us and those who are around us, actually extend benefits to us even if we didn't actively participate in that action. Often this is called, when it comes to white culture, white privilege. Right? And this makes us feel uncomfortable as a white person. I get it. Right? But the reality is, within this broader corporate responsibility understanding... Those within a white culture and a culture designed to help white folks flourish a little bit easier, a lot easier than minorities, there have been decisions by those before us and those around us that if you're white, you have certain benefits just by virtue of being white. And if that feels really uncomfortable, if that feels really uncomfortable, I encourage you to explore another idea that sociologists have been helpful in unpacking, and that's the idea of white fragility. White fragility... It's the idea that within a culture designed because of the historical realities in which we find ourselves in, we're not locked in, this isn't a blank slate where everybody starts in the same spot. Because of the whole historical trajectory, living in a culture that's been shaped to help benefit white folks, when, when we actually start talking about conversations of race or racism, it feels super uncomfortable. It's stressful. And most of us as white folks aren't used to having to deal with stress around race because we can choose to opt out. And so this white fragility is an idea that it feels extraordinarily uncomfortable and foreign to even have a tension around race. So I'd encourage you to explore that as a helpful concept in, in this broader conversation. What we see here, though, in the biblical narrative is that corporate responsibility is a thing. If you go to Joshua... We find that the whole nation of Israel goes up to battle against Ai, and they lose. Why? Because of, like they all were sinning? No, one guy, Achan, one guy, disobeyed God, and the whole nation received consequences for the sin of one. This is corporate responsibility and identity that's anchored and played out throughout the rest of Scripture. And this is so important to understand. Here's why we'll undercut the gospel if we undercut corporate responsibility. Because Abraham is asking here, can that work in reverse? Do you see? Can that work in reverse? If we, can, if, we, if we are responsible for someone else's sin and their destructive behavior, and we actually are responsible now to pay forward that punishment, could it be that someone else's righteousness, if I have solidarity with the, that person or those people, that righteousness now, I receive the benefits of that. This is a truly remarkable argument that Abraham is pursuing as the priest of the plain. And so Abraham begins to go deep into this exploration as to how small this righteous remnant actually needs to be. 
So God, if there were, if there were 50 righteous ones, is that enough to cover all the wickedness of the city? Yeah, if there were 50, that would cover this whole city and I would, I would give it grace. What about 45? Eh, if there are 45, yeah, that righteousness of that 45 will cover the whole city. I won't bring about just judgment on them. Okay, what about 40? All right, well, you know, Lord, please, please. And if you look at this, Abraham is so self-deprecating. He's like, please, if you please forgive your servant, I'm going to ask one more time. 30, 30, can I get a 30? Like 30, yeah, 30, you got it, sold over there. No, okay, like just one more time, can I press? How about 20? Yeah, sure, if there are 20 righteous, I will forgive, I'll pardon this word pardon is literally the word forgive. I will pardon a whole city just for 20. Okay, God, I know this is going to be crazy, but what about 10? Can I get 10, right? Like, just 10. Um, then, yeah, if there are 10 righteous, if there are just 10 righteous, I will pardon. I will love the righteousness of those 10 righteous so much that it'll cover, it'll carry forth a whole new identity that my justice will pass over. It's a corporate identity. And God's saying, yes, just for 10, my will to save is so great that I will pass over that community. You see, Abraham learns something truly astounding. And here it is. This is so important for us. What he learns is that a righteous few can cover the wickedness of many. A righteous few can cover the wickedness of of many. And after he discovers this, Abraham stops at 10. Now what we know, which has already been communicated, we talked about it at the very beginning, is that Abraham as a priest fails. Sodom is still destroyed. <laughs> Sodom is still destroyed. And, and we don't know why Abraham stops there. Maybe he thinks, oh, 10 people. That's Lot, his wife, his two virgin daughters, their sons-in-laws, and their parents. 10. Ten, got it. Like it's covered, right? Like maybe he's thinking potentially we're in the clear. Maybe he's thinking, because listen, when you're reading this, you're thinking, okay, he got down to ten. Why didn't he go? Like there's this tension in the text. What if he went down to one? Like God, God, I know, I know. I know 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. But what if, what if, what if there was just one righteous? If there was just one, do you love righteousness so much? Is, could, could the righteousness of one transform how you look at a whole community? But he doesn't go there. Is it because he's thinking, well, there's Lot. Oh, I know Lot. <laughs> if you read the story about Lot, you'd be like, eh, I don't know if my odds are that great either. I mean, maybe he's thinking there's just no unrighteous enough. I mean, this becomes a theological exploration where he finds himself saying, okay, either 10 is enough or he's so skeptical that he can go even further than that, that he walks away. We don't know why Abraham walks away at 10. But we know he does. And we know that Sodom is destroyed as well as the other cities in the plain. And we're left hungering for a better priest, someone who will continue to press, someone who can actually provide this righteousness. And that is where, folks, we fast forward to the first century. And really, this is the whole storyline of the Bible, is that we see that Jesus Christ is that better high priest. It's all over the pages of the book of Hebrews, where Jesus where Abraham was pressing and he stopped at 10, Jesus says, I am that righteous one. 
He's the one who stands between God the Father's justice and the brokenness of our humanity. And he not only intercedes for us, he now provides the payment of the righteousness that we need. And everyone who has solidarity with Jesus, who takes up community with him and his people, there we find that there's untold forgiveness, unbelievable pardon, and a whole new perspective from God's point of view on who you are and whose you are. You see, in Abraham, we learn that a righteous few can cover the wickedness of many. But in Jesus, as we see in Hebrews at the very beginning verses, God has revealed certain things up to a certain point, but he's revealed himself most beautifully in the person and the work of Jesus. In Jesus, we see that the righteousness of one can cover the wickedness of all. And what an amazing high priest he is. I mean, Abraham... Bless him. I mean, he's praying for Sodom. He's interceding for Sodom, who hadn't been great to his kin, as we just discovered, right? And hadn't been the greatest of neighbors. Already had a reputation of wickedness, and he's praying. But Jesus prays for the people who are killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Abraham's looking for the righteousness of just someone. And Jesus says, I am that righteous one. And gives us the greatest glimpse and the greatest hope of all. And then in John chapter 17, we see Jesus bring a high priestly prayer before he goes to his death. Interceding for those, all those who will come after him. Praying, pleading that they might be one as he and the Father are one. That we might know the life we are designed to live in him and him alone. This is the gospel that God became flesh, was the righteousness we desperately needed, went to the cross, paid the debt for our injustice and our destructive actions, our sins, our trespasses, our iniquities. And then on his death, when he took all of our sin upon himself, he gave us his righteousness. And in solidarity with him, we have forgiveness and now access before God. Fully forgiven and freed. And if you thought that was weird, what's even weirder is that those who follow Jesus, those who find solidarity with him, in the same vein as Abraham, now we hear that God wants you to be a priest. Now don't worry, you don't have to get rid of your wardrobe, although black is always in. Um, And you don't have to not get married. That's actually not in scripture anywhere as a command for those who play in this role. What we see across the pages of scripture especially from the Apostle Peter, is that everyone, not a subset, everyone who is a part of the church belongs to what is called a royal priesthood. This was Martin Luther's, one of his big pushes to understand the priesthood of all believers. That if you follow Jesus, if you're part of the redemptive work he's doing in the world, wherever you are, you are a priest for where you are. And because of Jesus, because he did what no one else could do, we can be a priest like Abraham couldn't even be. And as a priest, we can finally be be people who humbly advocate for everyone on account of one. We have a prayer that Abraham did not know. We have insight that Abraham wished he had. We can pray based upon the righteousness of one For everyone who is in our midst. And the reason this is so important to look at today. 
is because without Jesus, this sort of command, it's, it's impossible to live into. I mean, think about your prayer life. How's your prayer life going? When you pray, do you exclusively pray for yourself or are you praying for others? Are you looking over our city here in Kansas City and praying for our city? Are you looking over your work? Are you looking over your relationships, over your family and asking God to intercede and actually that that the righteousness of Jesus would be the only claim for him to do something truly amazing in our city? Because listen, if we don't understand that, then what's going to happen in our priestly role is it's going to be, we're going to find ourselves way too proud to pray the prayers that Abraham prayed. Too proud because we're going to come expecting that we're righteous enough to pray for everyone else. It has nothing to do with our righteousness. We're in the same boat. The only reason we can now intercede is because the righteousness of Jesus is ours. And it's His righteousness we point to for God to work in the world, not ours. If we don't hold on to Jesus, we'll find ourselves to be too timid or too tentative. Because we come now with the righteousness of Jesus as the bold foundation that we can boldly come to God and ask Him to work in the world. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews says? Because of Jesus, we can now approach the throne of grace, what? Boldly. Because of Jesus and His righteousness. And not only that, if we don't hold on to Jesus, then our priestly role will be too limited. Too limited. There will be people we won't pray for. There will be people we won't intercede for because they hurt us, because we see them as lesser than or or more atrocious than us. Whether because of their gender, their race, their class, their political persuasion, whatever it might be. Really, what we come to find as, when we find our identity in Jesus, when we have have solidarity with Jesus, and we follow Him, and we trust Him alone, and we find community with Him and those who are His, it transforms our priestly role to be more confident than we thought possible, we're more humble than we ever could have imagined, and more inclusive in our intervention, such that we humbly advocate for everyone on account of the one. This week I want us to try something. I don't know if you've seen these or not. We haven't pushed them too hard, but they're back there on the table. We have these uh, prayer cards for our global partners across our five campuses. Um, We have different partners that different campuses take the lead on, but really they're all of our global partners are all of our global partners. And on each one of these, so this is the one for July, there's a specific prayer request our global partner has given us to be praying for each day of the month. For example, tomorrow is justice and fairness in the political process in Kenya. Seems like a pretty good thing to be praying for. And I want to challenge us this next couple weeks these next couple months the rest of this summer pick this up play the role of priest that God is inviting you to play and come now and humbly advocate for everyone on account of the one come praying for not just our partners but the context and when they found which they find themselves come asking for pardon over those whole cities in the same way that Abraham did for all of Sodom and all of the plain what would it look like for that to be our story here You know what's fascinating is that many commentators have noticed, and this is another little side tidbit, that 10 people was roughly the quota necessary to start a synagogue. 
And, and the, the thought process goes this way. If there were at least 10 people, then maybe there could be a transformative, a redemptive movement happening in that city where God could work through those 10 people to actually bring about change in that city. And when I look around this room, I see a lot more than 10 people. I see a royal priesthood of those who are found in the righteousness of Jesus who have been covered by a work not our own, but called to do a work that we never thought we would get to do. For a city that often feels so broken, but because of Jesus' righteousness, we can have solidarity in the most broken of moments and cry out for God's pardon and His care. Imagine what He can do in our neighborhood, our city, and our world with the likes of us. Which is why it's so important we come to the Lord's table, as we do every week. Because it's there we remember who purchased and how he purchased our righteousness, that he might share it liberally with you and I. We come to the Lord's table every week to hear that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and he died and he took all of our sin upon him. And in the shedding of his blood, we find forgiveness. But when we're handed the bread, we remember that he hands us his righteousness free of charge for all who follow him. So when we come, may we eat and remember May we receive and rest in the righteousness of God and Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you have done in Jesus. Thank you that you look at us not because of our individual decisions alone, but because of the identity we have in the body of Jesus and the finished work of Christ. We hold fast to our corporate responsibility and privileges in the gospel. Regardless of race, regardless of orientation, regardless of gender and class and political persuasion, we hold fast to the unity we have in the gospel. And we ask, Lord, that in this grace we would be priests that honor your name and represent your son with integrity and courage. All by the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.